0: We'll turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 8 in your New Testament scriptures, Romans chapter 8. and We will look today at verses 5 through 17 of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and again we'll begin at verse 14 and read until verse 17. God says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help once again. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. In this time of preaching, this is what you've ordained, in your churches that we read and proclaim your word. So fill us, fill me with your spirit to proclaim, give us ears to hear by your spirit, fill us with your spirit to serve. You poured out your spirit on all, as we read there on the great day of Pentecost, to equip everyone in your body to serve you. So bless to that end, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites who stand on the verge of the promised land, ready to finally enter it. The second generation who grew up wandering in the wilderness and are now prepared to finally cross the Jordan River and enter the land of Canaan. And as they stood there, God spoke these words to them. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. God carried you as a father carries his son, And what parent or child cannot relate to that imagery of being cared for when they are in need and when they are in danger. That is the image God uses to communicate his care to the Israelites. As they journeyed from slavery in Egypt through the barren wilderness en route to the promised land. Well, throughout Romans 6-8, through 8, we've been telling that same story. A story that has come to fulfillment in Christ. Israel's story is your story. And just as Moses told Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. So we are God's adopted children who have been set free from slavery free from slavery to sin, free from the condemnation of the law, and now led into the wilderness to go and worship God and one day receive our promised inheritance. And just as God led that people by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, so God the Holy Spirit leads you in your battle against sin and in your endurance through suffering and trial. And so the concern for us would be, as it was for Israel, that we do not lose hope, that we do not become weary, and that we do not give in to sin as we journey to our promised land. I don't need to remind you, do I, of Israel's frequent missteps. We don't want to fall into some of those same traps. But as our passage today declares, by the grace of God, And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God enables you to enjoy His presence and His promises and His protection throughout this life. You're journeying, but you're not alone. And this passage today, it lays out for us our journey and how the Holy Spirit protects us on that journey. So let's go through this passage and let's look at these different ways the Spirit And Paul mentions five that we'll move through this morning. First, the Spirit frees us from death. And here's what you're going to see. A lot of the opening verses in today's passage recap what we've already seen in Romans 7 and in the beginning of Romans 8. So we can move quickly through them. Verses 5 through 8 here, they remind us of the contrast Paul has developed Between those who are enslaved to the flesh and those who are freed by the Spirit. So when he uses that phrase in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, he's referring to those who still live in the realm of the flesh. Who are enslaved to the flesh and are hostile to God. They don't submit to God's law because they can't. And so they can't please God by their works. And those who exist in that realm are headed towards death. Now Paul has already painted for us in vivid detail what life in that realm looks like. He did that in Romans 7. And then two weeks ago as we open Romans 8, Paul there declares and celebrates our freedom. Freedom from condemnation and death. So Paul right here in these opening verses is just reminding us one more time that's the former state and I'm about to contrast it with the new life. The new life you now live. So coming to these verses we celebrate one more time what God has freed us from. That we are no longer slaves to the desires of the flesh. That your outlook on life isn't shaped by the flesh. Your worldview, the the things that get you out of bed in the morning and drive you through life, the principles that guide your decisions, they're they're not ones that say, okay, how can I gratify the desires of the flesh? How can I please myself today? That's not how God's people are renewed by the Spirit. Our minds are governed by the Spirit. And He gives life and uh, peace, freedom from death, Peace with God. He empowers your life. He empowers your obedience to God. And that's a good place to be. That's where you want to be. That's the best story we can learn. Better than any story we can tell ourselves about who we are or where we're going. Better than any story that the world could tell us. God's story is I've set you free and given you this new life. That's the first thing Paul highlights. The second then is that the Spirit promises us resurrection and life. So we had the old life in verses 5 through 8. Now here's the contrast with the new life. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So believers have been taken out of that realm of the flesh and placed in the realm of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who makes that transition. And it's the same transition we saw in Romans 5. Once you were in Adam, now you're in Christ. It's the same one we saw in Romans 6 and 7. You were a slave to sin, now you live the life of the Spirit. You have a new position in Christ. The Spirit did that to you. And you know it happened because you exercised faith. You now live in that new realm. So what comes along with it? We've got that position. What does it look like in action? Verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, and even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now there in verse 10 where he says that you have life, I'm not sure if verse 10 is bodily resurrection or the new quality of life we enjoy because we're in the Spirit. This passage does make reference to both. Verse 11 to bodily resurrection. Verses 12 to 13 to the new quality of life. So it could go either way here. What we, because both are here, we don't have to worry too much about that detail. Here's what I would highlight from this section. Notice how Paul bookends the Christian life. The end of verse 10, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, and righteousness there refers to our entrance into the Christian life, what we call justification, or what verse 1 says, no condemnation. The Spirit places us in union with Christ, we believe in Him for salvation, He gives us Christ's righteousness and declares us to be just, and now we have life, that's the beginning of the path. And then Paul refers to the end of the road at the end of verse 11. God will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So we are freed from sin's power now, and one day we will be freed from sin's presence. We will be a part of God's new creation. You'll you'll be immune from the very temptation to sin. And I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to that day. And so Paul's point is the Spirit promises us life now and a resurrection to come. And what that means then is the Spirit will be at every point in between. He will preserve you and protect you until that day. So if you think of the Christian life as a journey, if you think of it as a pilgrimage, it's not one you are undertaking alone. God goes with you. As we'll see in verse 14, He is going in front of you. He is leading you on this journey. You have a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Holy Spirit who lives inside you and carries you along this path. So the Spirit promises you that life and one day resurrection. Number three. The Spirit enables us to say no to sin. So once again, Paul is summarizing this contrast, the old life, the new existence. So having summarized it, having made the contrast again, he now tells us, here's how you live in light of that. Verses 12 to 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So again, echoes of Romans 6. You're free from sin, but that brings service to Jesus Christ. Everybody is a servant to something, whether evil or good. And verse 12 makes the same point. It uses the language of debt or the language of obligation. You're not obligated to the flesh, but you are obligated to the Spirit. And Paul presents this obligation positively. He expects us to live this way because of our position. So he doesn't seem overly concerned that Christians will never bear fruit. Paul doesn't have a category for that. Nonetheless, Paul does give this warning. Verse 13, if you live According to the flesh, you will die. So, those who are enslaved to the desires of the flesh, those who give in to those desires as an overall quality of life, not saying Christians never experience temptation, but those who give in to them, who submit to them, that's what characterizes your life. Those kinds of people are headed towards death. So I don't think Paul mentions this here to raise the prospect that a believer could lose their salvation, but I do think he raises it here in order to describe Christians as those who bear spiritual fruit, those who grow in grace. And if a person is not showing these qualities, they have no right to claim to be a Christian. They need to come to Christ in saving faith. So that's the warning that's part of the assurance, but notice that in giving this warning then for those who do have the Spirit, Paul promises, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit enables us to say no to sin. And it promises that those who are learning to say no to sin, they have eternal life. So in in these verses, Paul might Uh, ground our assurance in the evidence of the Spirit's work. Paul is saying, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. And, And just notice, it's a great balance. Christians put to death the misdeeds of the body. There's an active component to the Christian life. We strive for godliness. We make every effort to live out the virtues of the Christian life. But notice that Paul also says we do this by the Spirit. So we cannot achieve holiness through unaided effort. We cannot grow in godliness by bare moralism or effort of the will. We don't want to adopt this mentality in which we think, okay, I can just force holiness from the outside in. So if I just adopt these external markers, if I just did these so-called habits, I would become holy. That is not biblical. Rather, by the Spirit's power, we put to death the misdeeds of the body. So the Spirit transforms who we are, which manifests itself in certain fruits and behaviors. And so I would just say then, the next time you're tempted to sin, the next time you feel your temperature rising or those desires coming on, take a breath and call on the Spirit's power. Just put a stop sign in your mind before you look at that image or hit that person or say those words or lose your cool. Or take that object, because nobody will ever know. Or fantasize about having something that doesn't belong to you. Slow down, friend. Breathe. Call on the Holy Spirit. Just take that temperature down one notch and walk away from that sin. That's a cliff's edge that could crumble under your feet. And the good news, friends, the Spirit enables you to do so. He gives you power to say no to sin. Let's come to the fourth thing. The Spirit assures us of our adopted status. Paul writes in verses 14 to 15, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba. Father. And here's where Paul begins to get into new material. We had the old life summarized, contrasted with the new life summarized, and our duties that arise from the new life. All ideas we've seen that Paul repeated here. Now he comes and tells us that by God's grace, another part of this Christian life is that we are God's adopted children. Now what does that mean? Why is that a big deal? Well, in the Greco-Roman World, The world of Paul's day and the Roman Christians. Fathers controlled the wealth in the home, and the eldest son inherited that wealth. That's the normal way things happen as children were born. However, there was also a legal process called adoption. Paul refers to it here, whereby one could adopt a child, one not born in their household and confer on that child all of those legal rights and privileges. So, in other words, the legal position that normally accrued to the firstborn son, Paul says, we have been given that legal position. We have been identified with the son in his position, and granted enjoyment of all his privileges. One of which is, as verse 15 says, addressing God as Abba, that is, as Father. We see Jesus praying this way in the Gospels, do we not? Abba, Father. We hear him teaching us to pray, our Father, who are in heaven. And the word Abba, by the way, is simply the Aramaic phrase which means the Father, Paul uses the Aramaic phrase because his Jewish readers would recognize it. His Greek readers would not, so he repeats himself and also writes Father. So we can call God Abba. That is our Father. It's not a phrase, Abba, Father. It's just two ways of saying Father. And it's a term that connotes intimacy, affection, and respect. It wasn't a a word used primarily by younger children. It was a word used by children of all ages because it communicated the closeness of the family. Outsiders didn't call other people their father. Children did. And it symbolized closeness, approachability, affection, and acceptance. And it's a wonderful privilege that Christians have. To call God their father. By nature, he is not. We, We are children of wrath, as Paul said, made in his image, but restored in our relationship by Christ and adopted as his children. So it's an immense privilege. It's also, by the way, a privilege that ties in with the stories Paul is telling trying to show how the Roman story and the Jewish story find their culmination in Christ. You see, in the Roman world, there was one person called God's son. That was the emperor. And he didn't always get that title in his life. Sometimes after he died and was deified, so to speak, he would be identified as God's son. But only one person got that title in the Roman world. In the Jewish world, now they're a little more comfortable with the language of sonship. The Old Testament does describe God as Israel's father. There are places where the people of Israel are called the sons of God. And so Paul is trying to say that story has come to culmination. And all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, enjoy that status because they're connected to God's son, Jesus. In Romans, you who want that status, you who want that honor, you who want that privilege, here's where you'll find it, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love it. Paul wasn't afraid to appeal to something that people and culture were looking for. But he always pointed them to the place where they'd actually find the solution. And that was in Jesus Christ. And what I would say to you friends, those of us children of God, Roebuck South Carolina, this reality of adoption, this should control how we view our relationship to God. So if we think about justification, that's how you stand before God in the courtroom. Well, adoption is how you relate to God in his living room. And he has invited you into his presence. To enjoy all of the rights, all of the privileges of the children of God. And God is saying, come on in. Take off your shoes. Stay for a little while. Your family, your home, when you're in Christ. And maybe that bristles against us. That seems a little too familiar, a little too comfortable uh, towards God. We we, we don't want to downplay his significance as king. You're right. God is the king. And we should reverence his king. But what did Esther enjoy? That there could be a king who would extend a scepter of welcome and say, come on in. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. And if a pagan king could say that to someone he loved and approved of, then the heavenly king can say that to his children. In fact, God doesn't limit us to half the kingdom. Jesus said, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And that's why verse 15 begins, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, we call him Abba, that is, Father. As a Christian, you should be free from fear And condemnation, and you should enjoy access and life in your Father's presence. He invites you there. And before we leave this point and and look at the last idea, notice also this. Not only does the Spirit make us children of God, the Spirit assures us that we are children of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So what did I say a minute ago? There's an aspect of assurance whereby you see the spirit produce fruit in your life, and that encourages you. Evidences that you're alive. And yet here in this verse, there is simply assurance given. It's just a subjective assurance that the spirit gives. An inward confidence That you belong to God. And that is something that you as a believer should seek. There may be times you don't have it. But we should seek it and ask for God to give it to us. The Bible makes us promises. We should rest on those. The Bible gives us tests. We should utilize those. And the Bible also says the Spirit will confirm in your spirit that you are God's child. That's one way he will preserve you through this journey. When when there's just nothing tangible that works, God himself will just say, I've got you. I love you, and I'm bringing you through this. And that brings us to the last idea then, that the Spirit leads us to our final inheritance. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. And co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. Since we are God's children. We are promised a final inheritance. And we are now journeying towards that final inheritance. You're not there yet, unfortunately. Like taking a long car drive. There's still distance to go. There may be suffering. There may be temptation. Barring the return of Christ, death lies between you, between us and that inheritance. But be assured, God is carrying you to that destination. You think, I don't know if I can make it. You take it one day at a time because God gives daily bread and he says, I am carrying you. And just notice the detail I skipped over in verse. Fourteen, Which says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That word led, it calls to mind Israel's journey through the wilderness. And that's why I've used that story to shape that sermon, this sermon. You are going through that journey. Here's how one author describes it. The Israelites were led by God himself going with them in the pillar of cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night. At various times, they wanted to give up and go back to Egypt where they had been in slavery. But they clung on, despite rebellion, idolatry, and a host of other follies. At the back of it all was the summons near the start of the book of Exodus, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my people go. And God was saying to them, driving them from behind with that summons, that you will one day arrive at last in the land to be given you as your inheritance. Again, we are undergoing that journey. And maybe we don't have a pillar of cloud and fire that we can see. That would be nice. But we do have the Holy Spirit. And he lives within. And in Jesus' logic, that's better. I don't always understand it. John, the middle of John, where he says, hey, it's good that I go away so the Spirit can come. I'm thinking it would be really good if you'd be right here where we could just ask you face to face what to do. But he says, if I go away, the Spirit will come and he'll be with all of you. And he'll teach you and he'll convict you and he'll enlighten you. And he will lead you and he will encourage you and he will carry you. You, like Israel, are God's firstborn son, his adopted child. And maybe sometimes, like the Israelites, we want to give up, we want to go back to the old life. For some stupid reason, we think that life was better. We tell ourselves that, don't we? But God says the life in front of you is better, eternal life, the hope of new creation. Excuse me. The hope of a resurrection bodies, life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where everything will finally work the way it was supposed to and there God will be all and all and we will glorify him. So friend, today you take another step towards that destination. And as you go, encourage some people to join you on the journey, to go with you To this heavenly destination. And as you go on your journey, make God's world better as you live in it right now. You can work for the life of then in the world that now is. You won't get it perfectly. You've still got thorns and thistles. There's still sin. We don't want to over-realize God's end-time promises. There's still sin. There's still trouble. But that world is broken into your heart. You're a new creation. And so you can serve in a new way in this creation and try to bring the life of then to bear on the life that is now. That's your journey. And when you think, but I can't do it, you don't do it alone. You have the Spirit, and you have the fellowship of God's people. And so let's pray together for the Spirit to protect us on our journey. Pray with me.